Praise God. And it's good to know that, that the Bible is a book that can be trusted. Isn't that right? I talked with a minister in my office uh, about a year ago now, or maybe more than a year ago, and he told me, he said, well, I just, uh, <clears throat> I was quoting something from the book of Acts. He said, you mean, you really believe the book of Acts? And I said, well, well, sure, I believe the book of Acts. He said, well, I have never been convinced that, that all the Bible's inspired. And I asked him what he believed was inspired, and he picked out a few passages, but he didn't believe it was all inspired. And then the big problem that he had was that he was here conferring with me, doing a little bit more than that, chewing me out is, is kind of a mild word, about somebody that was baptized out of his church into our congregation. And I told him, I said, well, it's a wonder that all your people aren't rebaptized in other churches. I mean, how in the world can you hold people together if the very textbook of your organization is invalid. How can you do it? What in the world are you talking to these people about? What are you preaching to them? Praise God. I believe it all the way from Genesis to Maps. Every bit of it. It's, it's a good book. It's an inspired book. It gives us hope, doesn't it? Praise God. It gives us hope. Now, we do want to say that... that uh, uh, it will be very, very busy uh, the week of the uh, 20th through there. We do have a, a few films to be shown on campus, and then one shown here on Thursday night, the 25th, and then they're showing it down on campus the 26th, and yet at the same time, Brother Wolfram will be here. Is that right, Brother Felix? And uh, I think this is probably a duplication of uh, dates that we overlooked Uh we just could not get Brother Wolfram any other time, and yet Brother Wolfram was really wanting to come here, and we want him to come here. It's good indeed to have our missionaries to come by. And so you can see that we have a good number of things going. So in, in any given week, we have here uh, a campus service. That is, our church is, is, is responsible for campus service. A midweek service, four rest home ser services, Saturday uh, bus visitation, and Sunday morning and Sunday evening service. And then we're coming along with uh, three additional ones beside that, or two additional ones. would be a Wednesday and a Friday. So it, uh, it gets to be real busy, but uh, uh, it keeps uh, people out of trouble. <clears throat> You know, the, the old saying, an, uh, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. Now, if this be true, nobody has any legitimate reason for backsliding, at least not around here. Isn't that right? <clears throat> Praise God. And I, I just uh, do appreciate so very much the uh, workers that we have here at Calvary Gospel Church. I uh, appreciate the men who came out and worked Saturday. You know, we have some hard-working men. I mean to tell you, if you have not worked with some of these men, you just should get out there in those flower beds and alongside the church and, and work. we got some men who will work your socks off of you. I mean to tell you, they, they light into it like a buzzsaw, you know, and they're just going all over the place and, 
in just a few hours' time, we had all the weeds out of the the plant uh, bed out there and and leveled out and all the bark raked out and, and covered with plastic and rocks spread on it and all of the black dirt spread around on the east side of the building and and the back back here all cleaned up and trimmed and started at nine and and we quit a little bit after twelve. Now that's only three hours time. That's a lot of work in three hours time. One of these days we're going to have an all day work and uh, we'll see what we can do. Praise God. I want to sing the chorus. I believe he's coming back like he said. I'd like for you to stand if you would for up there. <clears throat> do you feel victory in the Lord? Let's clap our hands, would you? Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. All right, from Luke, the 21st chapter, we're going to talk about the destruction of the Gentiles. I say the destruction of the Gentiles, the destruction of the temple, the time of the Gentiles. We're basically dealing with some Bible prophecy tonight. I would be the first to tell you that there is so much in the Scripture concerning Bible prophecy that I do not fully understand. I have read so many commentaries. I have uh, listened to so many tapes. I've heard so many messages about some of the events to take place from this time until all the way up till the white throne judgment. And there seems to be such a great diversity of uh, ideas, and it's uh, hard for me to sometimes draw conclusions what I really do believe about some of the things. I just want to tell you that. It appears to me that in the days of the past, when prophecy was fulfilled that even great men of God who lived on the earth did not recognize the fulfillment of the prophecy until even after it had actually occurred. And you will find that written in the Bible, that uh, prophecy was fulfilled right before them, and some of them didn't even know. And then it occurred to them that it was written, which was spoken by the prophets, such and such and such. You know, it actually happened. And it, in all probability, will be true in the future because that's been the pattern of the past. Of course, I believe that the book of Revelation is written in chronological order, that uh, the events occurring in the book of Re Revelation occur basically as they're written. I think there are references made back and forth, but basically from Revelation 1 all the way to Revelation 22, they're written as they occur. And I think this is the reason why it's called Revelation. Unlike any other prophecy of the Bible, uh, when you're reading Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel's prophecy, and some of the minor prophets, you will find that there is a jumping back and forth and it's very evident that's not in chronological order. But Revelation is the opening of understanding relative to how the events will occur. And that's why it's called Revelation. Because it uh, was not intended to be a deep, dark, mysterious secret held from man, but it was written in order to open our understanding as to how all of the prophecy of the past that was given would actually occur. And I accept Revelation to be in chronological order. And I'll have to continue to accept it until such a time that I 
I uh, am proven to, to be wrong in my particular analogy of it. Now, Luke 21, verse 20, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them that are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter there into. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For they shall, for there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. Now that's speaking of the Jews. This particular event that Jesus prophesied of was the prophecy of the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem that lay waste in 70 A.D. And, of course, this has already occurred. When the Jews stood on the day in which the Lord was crucified and said, Let his blood be upon us and upon our children and upon our children's children from this day henceforth, they did not realize, in essence, what they were saying. And there are certain things that when you make the statement, God takes your word at face value. Whether you are sincere or not, there are times when you make statements about God that he takes you seriously. And that was what happened. And this is the reason why the Bible says, And his wrath shall be upon this people. At the same time in which the Jews have been blessed as people, because that was also prophesied they would be. At the same time, you can see the wrath of God resting upon them. Now, that's a strange thing, to have both the blessings and the wrath of God upon you. There are people who live today that have a very similar situation in their life. While God is blessing them because they're manifesting faith, their life is not an anointed life. And so as a result... Because of wrongdoings, you find both blessings and curses upon them. That's a strange thing, isn't it? But it is true. Verse 24, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And of course, this has been fulfilled, in, in, uh, and history speaks of it. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. All right, you may be seated. Now, what we want to do in this particular passage of Scripture tonight, or this, I say passage of Scripture, with this passage of Scripture, we want to use it as a launching pad to just talk to you about the coming of the Lord and a few things that I feel that God would want you to hear. We have a film coming up entitled The Beast. Now, I'm not really for sure what it's all about, and I do not know, uh, in, in essence, what it uh, really does explain. The campus group have carefully scrutinized the materials in which they show down on campus. Everything that they show, they do not believe that it will be that way. And, of course, please understand that if we had a United Pentecostal Church minister to come and stand behind this pulpit and he was given a prophecy seminar, he would probably speak several things that you would understand that I would not concur with. 
Now, we know what we have to do to be saved. You know, you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. And if you are not, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, so as a result, if you want to be saved, uh, the best thing to do is just get your heart right and keep it right. And whatever happens will happen. See? Whatever happens will happen. And uh, we have ministers who believe in a post-tribulation rapture. We have ministers who believe in a mid-tribulation. We have ministers who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And I personally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. We have a good number of Canadian brethren that believe in a post-tribulation rapture. That the tribulation actually, uh, not a rapture actually takes place after the tribulation. Then we have ministers who believe that the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation period. And I understand the scriptures that they use and why they use them. And if we had a minister who came here and he believed in a post-tribulation rapture, he in all probability would speak of it. Now, you know, I wouldn't get so angry I'd kick the stars out of the skies as a result of it. What I'm saying is that if you're baptized in Jesus' name and you got your heart right, whether the church goes through the tribulation period or not, you're going to be okay if you'll just keep living right. Uh, the apostles, when they were here, they actually believed that the Lord was coming in their day. He did not. And it seems like that every generation after has looked forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When will he come? I don't know. By that I mean, I don't know if he's going to come today or tomorrow or next week. Back in 1982, and that was only last year in March, when we had the Jupiter effect, a lot of people thought the Lord was coming then. And uh, <clears throat> there was a whole lot of speculation relative to this. Now, personally, I think some of the things that were predicted that could happen, and nobody said they would happen, but could happen, were actually spoken of in the book of Revelation. You see, Isaiah prophesied of a time in which the earth would be moved out of its path. Now, did he not prophesy about that? And this was during the Great Tribulation period. And, of course, <clears throat> some great catastrophe has to take place in the heavens in which the earth is moved out of its path. Since the fourth day of creation... The earth has remained in its path. And everything has continued to be as it is, except for one little brief period of time in which Joshua called upon the Lord and the earth stood still. Or the sun, uh, the Bible says the sun stood still. And so God prolonged time to give him a battle. Now, it never happened before and hasn't happened since. And everything remains as it is, or has remained as it is, and will continue to do so until the tribulation period. And you can understand why islands will be moved out of their place. You can understand why a great comet would hit the planet Earth, and the water would become bitter as wormwood, you can understand those things when the earth leaves its particular path. You can understand why great heat will come upon the face of the earth. 
You think if the earth moved out of its path and entered closer to the sun, you think some of these burning hot days that we have had will be bad? You wait till that happens. See? And it's going to happen. The Bible says that it's going to happen. And the Bible speaks of great hailstones that will fall upon the earth equivalent to 100 pounds. Now, how in the world would this happen? Well, you can see if the earth moves out of its path and atmospheric pressures and such change, you can understand how that this, this type thing can happen. You know, God can allow or he can make either one anything to happen that he wants to happen. He has that power. He has that ability. Now, the church, the New Testament church, is a Gentile church. While it does consist of some Jews, basically it's a Gentile church. It was prophesied in the Old Testament concerning the, the Gentiles and the church that would come. And we do have Jews who are members of the true, blood-washed, Jesus' name, apostolic church. And I think that's great. Before Calvary, the church was basically, the church in the wilderness, made up of Jews. Now there were people involved in the religious structure, and I use in the religious structure, of Israel who were not Jews. When Israel came out of Egypt, there was a mixed multitude that came out. Ephraim and Manasseh had Gentile wives. See? And Moses himself had a Gentile wife. And nobody was involved more in the religious structure of Israel than Moses. For he was the giver of the Old Testament law. Of course, Moses had a Gentile wife as a type of Jesus Christ that took a Gentile bride. Why? Because Moses was rejected of his brethren. He was an outcast. And the reason why that Jesus has a Gentile bride today is because he is an outcast from his people. And largely today, the Jews do not believe that Jesus Christ is their king, that he is their redeemer, that he is their Messiah. Isn't that true? They do not believe it. Now, all I want to do is just for a few moments' time tonight, and as I say, I, I am well aware that we have people here in this congregation who have been studying the Bible for a long time that, uh, that interpret some of the scriptures different from what I interpret them. Now, this is not alarming to me unless you make a big faction out of it and create, uh, you know, a big uproar about it and uh, want to make a big fuss about it. Now, those things do get alarming. I will make an issue over the new birth doctrine that put us all into what we're in as quick as anyone. But things that, that are very questionable, when I say questionable, uh, that's exactly what I mean. Uh... I'll say, you believe it the way you won't believe it, and I'll believe it the way I want to believe it. But nevertheless, being I'm the preacher and I got the mic, I have the opportunity to tell you the way I believe it. <laughs> now, Revelation 1 is an introduction to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there is a description given of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you will notice the description given of the Lord Jesus Christ, the description given is parallel to the description given in the book of Daniel of the Ancient of Days. The truth of the matter is, in all the Bible there is no description given of Jehovah the Father. No physical description. And in the book of Daniel, in the Ancient of Days, there is a description given that fits the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you go to Revelation 2, you will find that there are letters written to churches of Asia. Revelation 2 and 3 contains seven letters written to the seven churches of Asia. And these were actual existing churches in the day in which this prophecy was written, which was written sometime around 96 A.D. Now, when the prophecy was written, the churches experienced the particular problems that John speaks of, and at the same time they had the blessings of God upon them that John speaks of. Now, I personally believe that this prophecy that was given, or these letters that were written, also, they are parallel to the particular ages of the religious structure from the time that Jesus Christ came until he returns. I believe the prophecy of Matthew 13, the seven parables of Matthew 13, parallel the prophecy of the seven letters of the churches of Asia. So if you want to read about the prophecy concerning the kingdom of God, you can turn to Matthew 7. Now I'll just give you an example of what I'm saying. In Matthew, Matthew, not Matthew 7, Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God being likened unto leaven. Now, the leaven that is spoken of here is not talking about the leaven of the Spirit. You follow what I'm saying there? Uh, there are certain things in the Scripture that I, I believe that that uh, that uh, righteousness is never compared to. An example of that, righteousness is never compared to leprosy. Leprosy is always a type of iniquity or sin. Leaven in the Scripture is always compared to sin. Now, the first parable is a parable of a sower. Jesus Christ was that sower. And I believe that we can preach that parable right today, and that parable can be applicable to human lives today. For he talked of the four types of soil upon which the gospel seed would land. Some fell on the wayside. Some fell upon stony ground, some fell among thorns, and some fell upon good ground. It's not really that alarming when you see somebody baptized in Jesus' name and never come back to church. It's also not that alarming. When I say that alarming, it should be a real concern of ours, but it's not an alarm to the point that we say, what in the world is wrong with the church? It's not what's wrong with the church, it's what's wrong with human hearts. See? And Jesus even had people who followed him that didn't stay with him. See, if Jesus were the pastor of this church today, 
he would have some of the very problems that we have occasionally with people wanting to backslide and leave. Now, why do you draw that conclusion? Because when he was here and walked on the earth, some left him. Isn't that right? If the Apostle Paul were the pastor of this church, he would have some of the problems that we have in our current time. Why? Because while he was walking on the earth, some left him. He writes of that in his letters. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. See? So you can, you can see that this has always been the condition. And then, of course, the second parable he gives is the, the mystery of the tares. Tares were sowed among the wheat. Now, what this is simply saying, that, that uh, somewhere around the end of the apostolic era, that's the age of the apostles, that uh, while men slept, the Bible says when men slept, Satan sowed tares among the wheat. So he sows great tares among the wheat. What should we do about those tares? Well, sometimes you can't do anything about them. There's certain things that God has to take care of. Now, I just, and the Bible says that here, the, fee, the, the, the field is the world. In other words, out in the religious world, God sowed tares among the wheat. And there are people today that, that live under this banner of Christianity that uh, are not Christian indeed. But you see, the, the, the whole situation of the church, if you notice the apostles while they were here, the apostles did not do rioting and such. Sometimes Christians hurt the Christian cause by stepping over their God-given boundaries. You follow what I'm saying? You know, in our country, we have the liberty, if we want to, to go down to public hearings and such and oppose certain things that are happening in the city. I see nothing wrong with that. But then I do say this, when we go, I think we ought to be Christian, we ought not be nasty. And sometimes Christians can have such nasty spirits. You know, they just want to... They hold a, their Bible in one hand and they have a clenched fist and they are shaking their fist in the hands of the judges, or face of the judges and various people, and they're acting so unchristian. See, you try to pull up the tares, and what do you do? You injure the wheat. So Jesus warned of this. Well, I think it is great in a democratic society for us to oppose certain things. I think the method in which we challenge certain things is very, very important. I really do. I really think it's important. I do not believe that you should launch an all-out campaign. When I say campaign, I'm talking about just plain rioting against things you don't believe in. I believe the Christian cause is to stand firm for what you believe and preach it. And a positive message is that you preach what you believe. And you preach it in, with such force and such positiveness that you're not always having a name call everything you don't believe in. Now sin, by that I mean sin, adultery, fornication, murder, idolatry, and so forth. I believe we can name those things. People know if they fit in that category or not. And that's not to say that every time you stand behind the pulpit, if you do call the name of something that you're doing wrong. But I'm talking about just all time. In other words, that becomes the focal point of your preaching. 
I don't think that's right. See, you cannot have positive results with negative preaching. So you can't do it. And I'll say this to all the young preachers who sit under the sound of my voice tonight. Even when you have to preach against sin, if you expect positive results, you have to sandwich the negativeness between two positive pieces of bread. And Jesus is the bread of life. And if you want people to eat the negative, I'll tell you what you have to do. You've got to cover it up with a whole lot of positive Jesus. See? All right. Now Jesus then spoke another parable, and the parable he spoke of is a parable of the mustard seed. It grew so large. Now at this particular time, it is so difficult to understand what he's talking about. The next one is the parable of the mystery of the leaven. Now what happened here is that leaven then was placed into a measure of wheat, or three measures of meal. And what happened is the, 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 the leaven that was placed in there, that it caused the whole measure to become leaven. Now, a lot of people say, oh, the leaven is the good. Now, if this is true, would you please tell me when did this world of ours experience a worldwide revival to the point that the whole world was righteous? I'd like to know when this occurred. But now if we reverse it and say that there was leaven or sin, false doctrine that entered into the three measures of wheat until all of the righteous was leavened, we have proof according to Scripture, not Scripture but history rather, where that the world entered into what we call the Dark Ages when the true apostolic faith was practically obliviated. Now that's already happened in history. But if this parable, the mystery of the leaven, if this particular parable applies to a particular given time, then it can only apply to one other time, and that is the millennium. Because it will never apply to our day. While the Bible speaks of great revival, it never speaks of a time in which the majority of the people will give their heart to God. Does the Bible ever speak of that? If it does, I haven't been able to find it. But in history, we have conclusive evidence that this parable has already been fulfilled. And if you want to, you can take the, the, the particular letters that Paul wrote to the churches of Asia, and you can find that these letters fit those churches. All right? The second mystery then is explained. And then, of course, again, verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a tr to a treasure hid in a field. And which when man, when a man hath found, he hideth, uh, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now, this evidently is talking about a time in which, after the righteous word of God 
had been practically eliminated by the leaven until, you know, the whole religious structure was corrupt. All of a sudden, somebody reading through the Word of God found a particular treasure. And this individual took and he, when I say individual, the parable speaks of an individual. I do not believe that this parable is speaking of Martin Luther. See? I don't believe the parable is precise. It's speaking of conditions here. See? And when it speaks of a man, it in all probability is, however, speaking of the Reformation. But you see, the Reformation was not enough. The hidden treasure, the field, was not enough. Because he follows it by another parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. And the Reformation certainly was responsible for the bringing back of the true apostolic Jesus' name doctrine upon the face of the earth. Now you can read that in history. While you may find traces down through the pages of history where people actually baptized in Jesus' name and they gave their life and their heart to the Lord, as a, as a whole, it was not true. There are more Jesus' name people living on the face of the earth right today than there ever was at any particular time. You may say, oh, but back during the days of the apostles. You've got to understand that back during the days of the apostles, most of the cities that were considered large cities were not large at all compared to our cities. See? And I forget now what the population was on the face of the earth when the apostles lived here. One time I looked it up, but it measured in the millions, and it wasn't many million people who lived on the face of the earth as far as uh, a man can account for. There are so many people living today on the face of the earth. And back during the days in which the apostles lived, a city with 30,000 people would be a sprawling metropolis. But today, it's not a big city at all, is it? Nothing at all. And so, the pearl of great price is the bringing back of the true apostolic message to the face of the earth. And then, of course, the last parable is the mystery parable of the dragnet. And that's talking about the Spirit of the Lord is going to go forth in the last days and gather fish of every kind. Now, everybody that's being influenced and everybody that's coming under the power of the Holy Ghost today will not be saved, according to this parable. Now, I'd like to speak more positive and say that everybody that's talking in tongues and everybody that's dancing in the Spirit and everybody that's prophesying and such is going to be saved, but evidently not. That's the reason why that when Jesus was here, when he said, Not every man that calleth me Lord, Lord, shall enter therein. For many shall come to me in that day, saying, Have not I cast out devils in your name? Have not I healed the sick in your name? And he shall say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Because you may, I never knew you. Now, isn't that something? 
You see, Jesus Christ, God Almighty, has the ability to forgive and forget sin. And that simply means that when you repent of your sins, He wipes them all out and casts them into hell. Some men's sins goeth beforehand to be judged. Other men's sins follow them. And when Jesus forgives you, friend, He forgets it. But just as He warned in the letters to the church at Asia that it's possible that He would remove their candlestick from in the midst and blot out their name, that once Jesus Christ also has removed a name from the Lamb's book of life, and friend, you can't come around me with that eternal security garbage and make me believe that, because that is not found in the Scripture. And if you think it's found in Scripture, you're just taking Scriptures totally out of context, and you are ignoring so many vital passages of Scripture that not only speak, but they describe vividly otherwise. Now, when he removes your candlestick or takes your name out of the name, name's book of, uh, out of the Lamb's book of life, <clears throat> I still don't know if I said it right. Did I say that right? Okay, he takes your, let's try it over. He takes your name out of the Lamb's book of life. Remember, then he also forgets your righteousness. And this is why he will say to them, I never knew you. It doesn't mean that, that they were casting out devils and healing the sick and so forth and, 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 and they were doing it all in the name of the Lord and God did not recognize what they were doing. For he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Brother, it doesn't make any difference what kind of experience you got at the altar. If you are not at this present time living that experience, you are nullifying that altar experience. God binds himself to man for one hour, and that's the present hour that you now live. He doesn't regard your past, neither does he bless you according to what you intend to do. If that were true, then a whole lot of people would be saved. And a whole lot of people, people would be blessed. But God does not bless you according to what you promise and what you intend to do. But He blesses you according to what you're doing now. He does not bless you according to what you did in the past. But He blesses you according to what you are and what you're doing now. N-O-W. You see, when God told Moses, I am that I am hath sent thee. I am Jehovah Elohim. The basic term there simply means the self-existing one. But it not only means the self-existing one, it means the ever-present God. And God, even though He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and He reigned from eternity to eternity, He always was and always will be, yet He describes Himself at various times in the Scripture, as being a God of the present. Right now. 
And he was reminding Moses, I'm not just the God of the past nor the God of the future, but I am that I am. The ever-present God right now. And so, if we want to satisfy God, He must always be not just the God that saved us and not just the God that's going to rapture us, but He's got to be the present God that we serve. I mean, right now. He's got to be the I Am. Right now. Right now. So... What happens here in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters are written. Then I personally believe that Revelation 4 and 5, the Revelation 4, I think, is a rapture of the church that takes place. Now, I believe, according to the Scripture, that there are several raptures. Okay? There was a rapture when Jesus went up. Is that not true? You see, when Jesus, when Jesus ascended from the heart of the earth, and when the Lord resurrected him on the third day, what happened? The Bible says many of the Old Testament saints rose out of their graves, and they went into Jerusalem. Now, what the word many means, I'm not for sure. It might mean that a whole lot of those people who died in the past, people thought they were going to be in that rapture, but they weren't. Evidently, they didn't make it. But there was, a, there was a, a rapture that took place then. A resurrection that took place. I'm sorry. I, I use the word rapture. I meant resurrection. There was a resurrection that took place then. So, the resurrection of Jesus took place. And then there's a resurrection of many of the Old Testament saints. Now, there were people who were raised from the dead down through the course of history as recorded in the Bible. And these, an example would be Lazarus, who was brought forth out of the tomb. He was a type of that resurrection. And God did it as a type of his resurrecting power. That's the reason why that his two sisters said, We know that in the last days he'll be resurrected. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he stretched forth his hand and he says, Lazarus, come forth! Did he come forth? Oh, yes, he did. And he didn't walk out of there. The Bible says he came forth. They rolled back the stone and the Bible says that he came forth. Now, he was wrapped up in grave clothes. And it looks like the Holy Ghost just picked him up out of the back of that grave and brought him right to the front. And he stood there before him. Now, I, I assume he wasn't able to walk, and yet he, would, he got there. See, that was the power of the Lord that did it. How, why do you assume that? Because Jesus then told his sister, said, go get your scissors and cut him loose and let him go free. See, he wasn't able to walk. But it was the Spirit that brought him up. See? And he stood there. That's a type of the resurrection. One of these days, the trumpet of the Lord is going to blow, and those who sleep with Jesus, they're going to come out of those graves. Praise God. They're going to come out of those graves. Hallelujah, hallelujah. They will come out of those graves. 
And then, of course, there is another resurrection that takes place at the very end of the tribulation period. I believe there's one resurrection that takes place before the tribulation period. And then there's another one that takes place after the tribulation period. And those, the resurrection there is for those who were beheaded during the tribulation period for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for His cause. Then after the millennium, the thousand years of peace on the face of the earth, there will be another resurrection. And people will appear before the white throne judgment. Now the Bible, when it speaks of the first resurrection, see, Jesus Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. There has already been two resurrections already we know of. The Bible speaks of it. Jesus Christ, the first, and then, of course, the Old Testament saints. So when it speaks of the first resurrection of the Bible, it doesn't mean the first time that people are resurrected, because we will be in the first resurrection. But it means resurrected for the first or for the primary cause of eternal life. Before God to be judged. And Peter speaks of this, and Paul speaks of it both in the book of Acts. And the book of Revelation speak of this also, in which people will be brought forth to stand to be judged. Peter speaks of the restitution of all things. In other words, everything that has been done will be brought to light. Now all I want to do is to just go through some of these things with you that I feel that would be very, very necessary for you to understand. Now, I personally think the church is raptured here in Revelation 4. Revelation 5, the church is in heaven. Okay. Verse 10, it has made us unto our God, kings and priests, we shall reign on the earth. That's speaking of the, of the uh, millennium period. All right. Now, when we go down to Revelation 6, we can find that there are four major conditions that come upon the face of the earth when the earth enters into the tribulation period. And so as a result, you will find that a fourth part of all the people on the face of the earth die at this time. In Revelation 7, God seeing the great calamities that are coming up on the face of the earth, He chooses to seal 144,000 Jews that they will not see death. Now verse, verse 3 of Revelation 7, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And so as a result, John begins to describe those that were sealed. And of course he speaks of 144,000 of uh, those 12,000 from the tribe of Judah and so forth, from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Asher, 12,000 of them from each tribe are sealed. And as far as I can see, they go through the tribulation period 
and they do not see death. But now many of the Jews will die during the tribulation period when their understanding is opened. Those that have not been sealed unto death, when they understand that Jesus Christ was their Redeemer, they will take on His name and they will die for that name. And they will not bow to the beast. In Revelation seven fourteen, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, and he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay. Now, <clears throat> there's people that passes through the tribulation period. However, in Revelation, if you will turn there with me to Revelation 21, <clears throat> And I saw thrones, Revelation 20, uh, 20, 20, pardon me, Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they set upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, are in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, the first resurrection, there has already been a resurrection. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. Old Testament saints were already resurrected. So when you read in the Scripture about the first resurrection, it is hard at times to pinpoint what particular phase of the first resurrection that is speaking of? Now, if you do not interpret this way, you will have, undoubtedly, a very, very confused method of interpretation. Now, it simply means that there are people who actually died during the tribulation period, and they didn't die for the sake of the Lord, and they were not beheaded. Well, we can show you throughout the Scripture in the book of Revelation where people died. Now, they did not receive a resurrection until the end of the millennium. But those who were beheaded did. Now, the 144,000 are not part of that number. Because they were sealed. What do they do? I believe that they are responsible for the repopulation of the earth during the thousand years of peace. And this was God's purpose of doing what he did. Now, Jerusalem will be downtrodden by the foot of the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, Revelation 8, Revelation 9... And then, of course, Revelation 10. This is undoubtedly the wrath of God upon the Gentile nation because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. And it appears that what's happened, Revelation 11, is the finality of God dealing with the Gentile nations. Now notice what happens in Revelation 11. There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, 
saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Forty-two months, three and a half years, Gentiles are going to compass the city, the holy city. Now at this particular time, the Bible says two witnesses came and prophesied in Jerusalem for three and a half years. Now I'll just give you my idea who I think the two witnesses will be. Now, I, I, I hear a lot of things about it, and I've looked at all of these. And I, uh, some people think it's Moses and Elijah. Most people do. And, of course, the reason why that they think it's Moses and Elijah is because of two things that happened while they were there. The two things that happened while they were there, and it is pointed out, if you will look in verse 6, These have power to shut up heaven, that it rain not, in the days of their prophecy. In other words, it didn't rain for three and a half years. And Elijah was the man who stood before Ahab and God gave him power to shut up the heavens three and a half years. And then, of course, the next man, they also had power to turn water into blood and to smite the earth with plagues as they will. And Moses was the man who stood before Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. And when Pharaoh wouldn't listen, God smote the earth with plagues. Most people feel then it's Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Did they not? You know, a whole lot of people worry about whether Moses was saved or not. Well, you don't have to worry about that. They said, well, he never went in the promised land. Oh, yes, he did. Because when those apostles, they said, let's build three tabernacles and stay all night. The reason why they did that, because they saw Elijah. They were so happy over the fact that Elijah was there. But not only that, they saw Moses. That settled the question. Moses made it. Now, he didn't physically go over there. He wept bitterly for Mount Nebo. God hid his body. In all probability, if God had not have hid his body, if God had not have hidden his body, they would have made Moses a God. He meant that much to them. But God hid his body. And the Bible says that the Lord and the devil disputed over the body of Moses. Why did the devil want that body? He said, you give me that body. The devil wanted to put it someplace in a, in a temple and Moses would be another Buddha or something like that. But God says, no! You're not going to get the body. And God hid it from the devil. See, the devil's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He couldn't figure out where that body went. But God hid it. Now, contrary to, to the case that I'm building here is why Moses and Elijah 
are the two prophets. I do not believe Moses and Elijah are the two prophets. I personally believe Elijah and Enoch are the two prophets. And you may say, why? Because they're the only men of the past that have escaped death. Enoch was translated. And Elijah was translated. Did I say Moses and Enoch? Elijah and Enoch. While Enoch was not a Jew, he was still one of the lords of the Old Testament. And they could trace their lineage back to Enoch. And so as a result, after they have prophesied, forty and two months in the cities, the Bible says that that uh, the people came upon them and killed them. And they hung their bodies in the streets for three and a half days. That's something. And of course the Bible tells us that that uh, uh, the people, uh, verse 9, look at this. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their bodies three and a half days. Or three days and a half. Now, they, they probably would probably be viewed on television. That's in all probability how the world's going to see them. So, all over the world. People are going to be able to see these prophets. Of course, something really happens to these prophets. Now, what are these prophets doing? What are they witnessing? They're witnessing to Jerusalem, telling that Jesus Christ was indeed the Redeemer. See, the Antichrist is setting up his reign, and he has made a covenant with Israel. Now, this is the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. Now, you may say, do you believe that the Gentiles can be saved during the tribulation period? I think the rapture is the end of the salvation for the Gentiles. The Gentile bride. But, just like other dispensations, you will find a little overlapping you know, all the law and the prophets ended with John the Baptist, and since then the kingdom of God's been been preached. But the truth of the matter is, the New Testament era, the church age did not start until the day of Pentecost. Is that true? Well, that's what the Bible says. We we got to put it together like the Bible says, and and then of course, uh, Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that law. So there were, from the time that Jesus died on the cross until the Holy Ghost was poured out in Jerusalem, there was forty. There were 40 days there, or 50 days there, rather. And uh, somebody came to me and asked me, said, uh, you mean to tell me that that if the law ended at Jesus Christ's death and, and the day of Pentecost started 50 days later, what about those people who died during that 50-day period? Well, just name me somebody that died there, and then I'll tell you if they're saved or not. You may say, well, surely somebody died. Just call their name. Tell me. In other words, what we're doing, we're worrying about something that, that God takes care of. I mean, why worry about that? I've got too many problems to worry about. 
let alone worry about somebody I don't even can't even call by name. See. So here we have these prophets prophesying in the streets. A strange thing happens to them, though. The Bible tells us that all of a sudden, after the three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered in them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Now, who were their enemies? Who were the people that saw them? People from all over the world saw them. Can you believe that? They were probably watching television. There will be a resurrection of two bodies where people will be brought back to life and the whole world is going to see it. Now, do you know what happens when these prophets die? People are so happy. You know what they do? They send gifts from all over the world to each other, celebrating their death. I mean, they're that happy. That's what the Bible says, isn't it, Brother George? It said they send gifts to each other. Oh, they just make a, you know, a national holiday out of it. Verse 10, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. They said, Look, these men have caused us too much trouble. Now, the only reason I believe it was Enoch and Elijah is because these were the two men of the Old Testament who did not see death. Enoch was translated, and so was Elijah. Moses was a man who died. And God's allowing them to come back so that they see death on the face of the earth, just like everybody else will see it. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and after death, the judgment. Now, other than that, I don't really have any other reason for believing it. Now, you can believe what you want to believe. That's all right with me. In fact, we both may be wrong. If you believe something else, we both may be wrong there. See, we just might both be wrong. Now, Jerusalem will be downtrodden by the foot of the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, a lot of things that are happening in the Middle East right now are happening as a result of the promise of God upon the household of Israel. Now, I firmly believe the reason why that the PLO and all of this business happened in Lebanon was because, you see, when God promised Abraham the promised land, he clearly defined the boundaries of the promised land. Now, the promised land was from the Red Sea. You remember recently? And this really surprised me when Israel gave up that land along the Red Sea there. But they didn't want to do it. Now, I believe they're going to get it back. God promised them the land from the Red Sea all the way to the great river of the north, and it calls it by name the river Euphrates. Now, they have never, listen to me, they have never, since the beginning of their nation, occupied 
all of that land. They've never had it. And then, of course, the eastern boundary was the Jordan River. Now, see, they have never had all of that. Now, the river Euphrates is a long ways north of where their present boundary is. It starts up in Turkey, goes all the way across Syria, down through Iraq, and dumps into the Persian Gulf 1,700 miles from where it starts. But God promised them they'd have that land. He said they were going to have it. And if God said they would have it, I'm a firm believer, they're going to get it. And you mark it down, they're going to get it. And one of the big problems about the PLO and such, and the reason why they didn't want to pull out of Lebanon, they might not have even known it themselves. But the truth of the matter is, according to the Word of God, that's their land. That's what the Bible says, Brother O'Neill. That's their land. And they're going to get it. And this is one of the big promises, it appears, with the Antichrist. After the rapture of the church, the Gentile church, and after the great calamities that take place on the face of the earth, and God stops the calamities momentarily and says, Nate, wait a minute, we're going to seal 144,000 that they won't see death. The 42 months of witnessing by the two prophets convert many of them to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But the Antichrist is going to take and slay some of them and put them to death. That's what's going to happen. Now there's a prophecy given way back in the book of Hosea, and we have read this prophecy and explained this in some of our preaching, but it might be good for us just to go back there and look at it. Hosea, the 6th chapter, verse 1 and verse 2. Come and let us return unto the Lord. What do you mean return unto the Lord? Something's going to cause the Israelites to return back to the Lord. And friend, they can't return to Jehovah without going through Jesus Christ. Why? Because since the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, Jesus has become the door to the kingdom of God. And friend, you cannot get into that kingdom unless you go through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the door to the sheepfold. If a man climbeth up any other way, he is the same as a thief and a robber. And if the Jews enter into the kingdom of God, friend, it will be through Jesus Christ. And so Hosea has given this prophecy. And listen, this is a part of the Jewish Bible today. They may not accept the New Testament, but friend, this is a part of the Jewish Bible today. And it's written in prophecy. Come let us return to the Lord, for He hath torn and He will heal us. He hath smitten and He will bind us up. Was the prophecy in the book of Revelation? was a prophecy in the book of Matthew that God would allow His wrath to rest upon them. And God is personally taking the blame. 
the Holocaust and such. We say Germany, Poland, Russia. God says, don't blame them. It's me. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? bad but that's what God says I got to believe the Bible why would you do such a thing God because that's what they asked me to do you know sometimes God will do what you ask him to do okay come let us return to the Lord for he hath torn and he will heal us he hath smitten he will bind us after two days he will revive us in the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight now he speaks of two days and he speaks of the third day in which they live in his sight well we know the third day is a thousand years don't we all right if you turn to verse 6 in Revelation 20, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death have no power. Now when do they live in his sight? A thousand years. They were beheaded and they were raised from the dead in Revelation 20 verse 4. And they live in his sight a thousand years in verse 6, of course, the Gentile bride that consists of every nation, kindred, and tongue, according to Revelation 5, will also live in his sight. But remember this, sprinkled throughout the pages of history, the Bible gives us a very clear description of what's going to take place there in the millennium. During the millennium, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ will set up his reign from Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people don't really believe he's going to dwell here on the earth. Some believe that he's going to dwell in the holy city above the earth. Now, I personally believe he's going to live right here on the earth. I believe he's coming back at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, when Jesus comes back with the Battle of Armageddon, at the Battle of Armageddon, he comes back with the new testament gentile church along with the old testament gentile church that was raptured after their resurrection there in the book of matthew and when he comes back friend he doesn't come back and get off that horse and all the saints get off that horse and we get a sword and we start slaying no the bible says the brightness of his coming causes the very flesh on their bodies to start melting. And the eyes actually melt into the eye sockets. Now what about those people? Oh, there will be a resurrection for them. But not until after the thousand years. See? What about all the people who died during the tribulation period? There will be a resurrection I'm talking about those who died during the great calamities and things. But it'll be after the, after the millennium. There'll be a resurrection for them. What about people who die now, Brother Grant, that's not right? There will be a resurrection for them, but not until after the thousand years. See? What about those who rest in Jesus now? I believe the trumpet could sound and they could go up. 
I'm talking about those who have died since the last resurrection that occurred at the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this may be confusing to some of you. Are you you got all this together. Wish I'd had time to put it all on transparencies and such. But for some reason, I just felt tonight, not thinking too much about the film, not thinking about it at all when I prepared this, that I should go through this. And maybe this will help you some when you see the film a couple of weeks from now. See? But Jesus said that Jerusalem should be downtrodden by the foot of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so as a result, the prophecy of the Old Testament also states that there will be a time in which God will say, I'm going to revive my people, and they're going to live with me a thousand years, or one day. Well, we know according to Revelation 20, that's a thousand years. Now, when Jesus sets up his earthly reign here, we will also reign with him a thousand years. And the Jews who were resurrected as a result of having their heads cut off by the mark of the beast, they will also be resurrected. And they will become part of the reigning body of Christ during the millennium. However, the 144,000 that were sealed, that they would not see death, they will repopulate the earth. There will be people born here on the face of the earth during a thousand years. In fact, during a thousand years, you'd be surprised how much the world would be populated. Now, a couple of things happen during that thousand years. One is the earth will not be divided by sea. Now, I'm not going to say there won't be bodies of water, but what I'm saying it will all be connected. And that's going to be great, isn't it? The Lord's going to reign from the holy city. And the Bible says he reigns with an iron, a a rod of iron. What is wrong with my mind? Okay. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is going to stand there and he's going to say, Hey, now everybody, you're going to follow me where you want to or not. No, my friend. What that's saying is that you really don't have a choice during that day. Why? Because the devil is cast and bound in the bottomless pit, and the power of choice is taken away from you. That's what it's saying. You just simply do it because that's the thing to do, and you don't know to do otherwise. It's going to be great, isn't it? Yes, it's going to be great. Way back after the Tower of Babel, when man, right after the Tower of Babel, when man was... Uh, rebellious against God. And when God dispersed man and put them in their particular countries and limited them to the bounds of their habitation, which the Bible said he did. You see, all of this business about national boundaries was not God's man's idea to start with. It was God's idea. Sometimes we wonder, how, how did the American Indians get here? How did the Indians get way down in South America? The Bible also tells us back in those days when rebellion came and God placed na- men in national boundaries and determined their boundaries, the Bible also says in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. And I personally believe that that is simply saying that all of a sudden God looked down and said, now we're going to divide the earth and we're going to put man in their boundaries and and we're going to limit them to that and that's where they are to stay and so forth and so on. Why was that? So that iniquity could not cover the face of the earth as as rapidly as it did when 
all men were one flesh. What happened in the flood? You see, there were no national boundaries then. And so as a result, what happened? The whole earth became full of iniquity. And one of the greatest things to stop iniquity in our day is national boundaries. Now this may surprise you, but one of the big things that happened in Iran due to them holding the hostages for the 400 and something days that they held them, they became extremely irate over the fact that America, the Western world, was infiltrating into their society American customs that were contrary to their belief. Now that was publicized in national magazines and papers. And they did not like it when America began to send Western films to show in their movie houses that corrupted their young people. Now, I don't know how you feel about it, but I believe all of those helicopter crashes and things happen as a result of God saying, America, we're going to teach you that you cannot corrupt the whole world. And you cannot cross national boundaries and do what you're doing. You keep your garbage in your own country. And we're going to stop your helicopters and we're going to show you that there's a little nation by the name of Iran that you won't run over. And our faces turned red as we stood before the whole world and said, we don't know what to do. Now, maybe you've never thought of that before. While I do not agree with the Muslim faith, and I do not agree with their religion at all, I also, friend, I would rather be a Muslim and have good morals than to be an American Christian that had no morals at all and watch X-rated movies and such. Now, I'm just talking about what I'd rather be. And that was one of the big issues behind the whole thing. Don't come and westernize us. Now, you know, you read that. And you know that even Vietnam started as a religious war to start with. You remember when, the, when all the, the, the Buddhists and such and priests and such were burning, setting gasoline and they were burning, and the Catholics and the Buddhists and all of them were having a great big deal over there, and after a while it got bigger and it got bigger and it got bigger, and then it's Viet Cong and the Vietnamese, and after a while it's America. And then we got to thinking, now why aren't we over here to start with? We didn't even know. Now, I'm not saying that America should not be concerned about what's happening in our world today. But I am saying this, friend, that there's a whole lot behind the scenes sometime in the plan of God that you and I do not understand. But I know that one of these days the Lord is coming back. I know that. And I know He's coming back when He has to come back. And when Bible prophecies fulfill, friend, the trumpet of the Lord's going to blow, and you and I are going to be caught up to meet Him in the air, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. 
And I know that you and I are going to come back with the Lord at the battle of Armageddon. And I know that Jesus Christ is going to set up an earthly reign. And you and I, along with the Jews who were beheaded for His name, you and I will be immortal, yet walking here upon the face of the earth, and we will be reigning over mortal people who will repopulate the earth, namely the 144,000. See, some people don't like the earth. Well, please understand, you'll probably be here a thousand years if you were to die tonight saved, one of these days. You may say, oh, it's going to be different. Oh, yes, it will be different. But still, the, the new heaven and the new earth is not made until after the thousand years. Do you know that? You know, all of us may reign and rule right here in Madison. Well, that sounds far-fetched, I guess, but, but, but it can be that way. In Second Peter 3, when he speaks of, of one day with the Lord is a thousand years with man, and a thousand years with man is one day with the Lord, evidently, while I don't believe that was meant to be an equation, Second Peter 3, verse 8, it does appear, according to Bible prophets in the Old Testament, that uh, it's that way. So, the time of the Gentiles, evidently, is 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Now, when Jesus Christ was born, they rejected Him. He was born somewhere around 4 to 6 B.C. And, of course, from zero until 2,000, that's... 2,000 years, if you take all the four, that's 1996, if he was born in 4 B.C. But the time of the Gentiles, though, the rapture of the church takes place before the tribulation period. So, how long is the tribulation period? Some people say seven years, some say 14 years. See, I'm not really for sure when he starts counting time when he stops. The time of the Gentiles is fulfilled evidently here in Revelation 17. But if the church is raptured prior to that, I don't really know how to count that. So if you were to knock off seven years, you'd have about 1989 or something like that. Adding the four to it, 11 years because Christ was born in 4 B.C. We know he was born before B.C. History proves that. But when? We're not for sure. But then if you count the seven years off, then you got 1982. And you may say, what are you trying to say in all this, brother? Are you trying to predict when the Lord's coming? No. All I'm trying to say is, friend, whatever we do for God, we've got to do it now. And if you're sitting under the sound of my voice and you haven't made a start for God, you can't dare wait another week. We're living in that period of time in which we've got to determine what we're going to do. Do we want to build a church or do we not? When I say church, I'm not talking about a building. Do we want to evangelize? Maybe I should put it there. Or do we not? Do we want to preach His coming or do we not? Do you want to get right with God or do you not?
I can assure you this one thing, friend, that after the thousand years have been completed and the devil is brought out of the bottomless pit and he goes forth, the Bible says, to deceive the nations, what happens? Jesus then takes the rod of iron and he lays it down and he says, now we're going to give man a chance. He's lived a thousand years. There's been perfect peace on the earth. Now, you decide whether you want to live for God. And you see, that is the crucial test of all men of all ages when they start determining what they want to do. And the beautiful thing about the plan of God, and I do say beautiful, is that God never makes you do anything. He always lets you determine. He let the angels determine whether they want to be saved. A third of them went with Lucifer. Adam and Eve were given the power of choice. And we're given the power of choice. And even when Jesus rules with an iron rod, I got it right then. When he rules with an iron rod during the millennium, he's going to lay it down and says, Now, we're going to give you a choice. And so he does. But then, some will choose and some will not. After... After the thousand years are complete and the battle of Gog and Magog has been fought. Another battle very similar to the battle of Armageddon. Then the Lord will allow the elements of the earth to burn with fervent heat and he will set up a white throne judgment. The Bible tells us that he sets this up. And the Bible tells us at this white throne judgment, if you will turn with me in Revelation 20, verse 12, verse 11, pardon me. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Now, let me explain something about the white throne judgment. Those people who have already been raptured, and those who have been resurrected, and surely my children the hour is approaching when I will return from my elect I know you by name. I have placed my own name in your foreheads. And you have not denied my name. But I would that you would herald my great name that others may know it. For that great, terrible day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night to many. But your responsibility to me is to spread my name, that is the saving name. 
But I ask of you not to be so engrossed with the cares of this life. For the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches will swallow you up. But if you keep your eyes upon me, then shall you know that I am your security indeed. Great things are coming upon the face of the earth. And I ask you to hold my hand steadfastly. And if you do so, ye shall be saved in the terrible day of these things. But I also speak tonight knowing the hearts of all men that there are some among you who would reject me and there are some who would look at my nail-scarred hands and my pure side and walk away and not understand that I became the sacrifice for them also. Do you understand tonight, my love? Do you understand that I'm reaching for you and that I love you? For it is not my will that any should perish, but that all should repent and find eternal life saith the Lord. Remain seated in silence, if you would, with your heads bowed as the organist and pianist come. <laughs> 